The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to be looking at problems with naturalistic evolution. And we're looking at problems with, uh, the, with the issue of evolution. I'm going to zero in on three things that I consider to be very, very difficult to explain, very difficult to explain from an evolutionary framework. Three things. There are probably 30 more or 300 more. But these are three that if I'm looking over the landscape of this issue, I'm putting my finger here and I'm saying, this is really, really hard for them to overcome. Uh, how do they overcome it? We'll talk about that. Okay, we'll talk about it. Um, I think the answer is blind faith in some cases. There's no other good answer, okay, because science doesn't cover it. Um, but we're going to look at that. What are the three problems for natural evolution? Tonight, we're going to spend 95% of our time on the first. I'm just going to talk about the fossil record and irreducible complexity tonight just so you know what they are. And we're going to give more time to them, as I said, God willing, in two weeks. Besides this, namely the scientific problems with evolution, we still have some biblical work left to do on creation with some of the ways that Christians, solid, committed Christians, have handled the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis 1 and 2. There are certain things called, for example, the day-age theory. The idea that Genesis 1, uh, when it says there's evening, there's morning, the first day, that we're really talking about an age of indeterminate amount of time. I'm going to show why I think that that is not possible biblically. Uh, there's also the gap theory, the idea that God created the universe, the physical universe, but there was a gap in Genesis between Genesis 1, verse 1 and verse 2, where it says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So there's a sense of kind of problems with the, with the universe, and then God began to create. And so you have this, really, if there's a gap, it could have been literally billions of years in between Genesis 1 and 2, and you don't start getting the days until God says, let there be light, and that's when the clock starts. And some Christians believe that, and it shouldn't be disdained. I still think there's biblical problems with it, and we're going to talk about that. But So there's still some biblical work to be done on, on creation, and then you know we'll uh, finish that up, and then we'll, we'll pick up with Providence wherever Jason leaves off, Okay. So tonight we're going to look at problems for naturalistic evolution. And they are three. The origin of life, the first. The fossil record, the second. And irreducible complexity, the third. Now what are these? First, the origin of life. Simply stated, how do we get living things from non-living? How did that happen? How do we go from just chemicals, you know, like methane and oxygen and nitrogen and just chemicals, inert chemicals, to life. Really, in order to answer that, you kind of have to figure out what life is. And that's not easy to define, is it? It's actually pretty hard. But how did we get from non-living to living? And we're going to spend our time on that tonight, most of it. Okay. Second question is the question with the fossil record. Have you ever heard of the missing link, like Darwin's missing link? What does that refer to? Okay, something missing. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. All right. He studies too much. And see, that's what happens when you really get into this, as Jim does. It tends to affect your brain. But uh, at any rate, missing link between what and what, Jim? That's right. Yeah, you're really zeroing in on the link between apes and us, right? And why? Because that's of, I, I think, passionate interest to us. I mean, are we really evolved from apes? And if so, we would like a missing link. Well, what, why do we say that it's missing? Missing from what? The fossil record. Ah, there doesn't seem to be any fossil evidence of the transition from apes to man. Well, I would say that there's probably, you could make a better case for the transition from apes to man than you can way back in the fossil record earlier from simple multicellular structures to more complex. 
Because these more complex things like the trilobites and these weird looking things, you ever see those time life drawings of what it looked like or whatever, what life was like 500 billion years ago or whatever. 500 billion, that's too much, 500 million. Um, at any rate, and they have these complex creatures. Well, they didn't come out of nowhere. And if you believe in evolution, they must have evolved, but there is simply no fossil evidence of evolution up into those creatures. They just appeared like that out of nowhere. Say again. Imagine that, out of nowhere, fully formed. And there's not just a missing link. There are infinite missing links. Why are there infinite missing links? Think about it. Not just a missing link. Why almost innumerable missing links? Think about it. Yeah, there's incredible diversity and evolution posits that all of this diversity came from a single cell some time ago. And they say, remember we talked last time about the God of the gaps? Let me refresh your memory. The God of the gaps is the concept that fundamentalist believers or true believers in the Bible always resort to God when we can't understand something from science. So once you get truly educated, you don't need God anymore. God just fills in the gaps, right? And so little by little, um, you're going to fill that in with knowledge. It's a very arrogant thing to say, isn't it? Uh, if you're missing an outline, Jack's got some more. You raise your hand and I think most, most people have them. All right, God of the gaps. All right. Well, what it means is covering over the gaps of our knowledge. Well, there are gaps in the evolutionary scheme too, aren't there? What covers over their gaps? Well, I told you last time. What do they use to cover the gaps? Time, right? We're going to talk about inc incredible complexity. And then you say, now we admit that it's very improbable. We admit it. But we've got millions and millions of years to work with, right? Well, why does that fall apart when you come to the concept of the fossil record? Why does it fall apart? Why is it actually the exact opposite of a help to them that there are millions and millions of years? If there are millions and millions of years, that means that there are millions and millions of dead things around under our feet, right? Millions and millions of years, actually billions or even trillions and trillions of dead things under our feet. Where are they? You see what I'm talking about? And the more years, the more you stretch it out, the bigger the problem gets. You see that? So we should have no problem finding these missing links. We should be tripping over them. We should be driving around them as we go home tonight. They should be everywhere. And we can't find even a single one. That is a big problem. A big problem. So we're going to develop that more, God, God willing, in two weeks. The problems with the fossil record. The third is a problem uh, that has been developed by Michael Behe uh, in his book, Darwin's Black Box. It's a brilliant book. It's called The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution. All right? Basic concept is that Darwin's black box is the cell or multicellular structures within the body. It's called his black box because he didn't understand the cell. Cell is unbelievably complicated. He thought it was just some simple thing. It's no big deal. As a matter of fact, for a long time, people thought DNA was simple. It was just like kind of endlessly replicating chains of, you know, uh, the same sequence over and over, like a repeating decimal. That's what they thought. Like, you know, I have a repeating decimal that goes one seven four three one seven four three one. That's what they thought. Well, they were wrong. And they came to realize in the 20th century how important DNA was for everything. All right? But that's what they thought. They, they underestimated the complexity of the cell. All right, but what irreducible complexity argues is that there are certain cell cellular structures that if every piece isn't there, they do nothing for you at all. Okay? They do nothing for you at all. The example, there are many examples in Behe's book, but an uh, example would be the eye, for example. Uh, you know, it all needs to be there or else it's not going to help you. One of the questions I ask here is, uh, what good is a wing, for example? Think about flight. Right, we're going to talk about that. Okay? If evolution is true, there was a time that nothing could fly. Doesn't that make sense? And at some point, things learned how to fly. Four things in particular, or totally, insects, birds, uh, flying mammals like squirrels and bats, and extinct, now extinct flying reptiles. That's all that's ever flown, okay? Not counting us, we don't fly, we get in things and fly. We use our brains to fly, okay? But I'm saying physiologically four things, okay? How did flight evolve? Well, we talked last time about the fact that, that there's never any been any example ever 
of information being added through mutation, right? Genetic information is only ever lost through mutation, not added. Well, at some point, they added flight. Well, how did that happen? Well, we have millions and millions of years to work with. Okay, let's go with that. Let's, let's go with the millions and millions of years. Okay, that, let's think about birds, okay? That means you have to have millions and millions of years of useless wings. Do you see what I'm talking about? Millions and millions of years of wings that are 29% evolved, 36% evolved, 41% evolved. We're getting there. Now, give us time. Come on, we're getting there. Okay, what, what are these things? What are they? Well, they're, I don't know if they are. My great-grandmother had them. Mine are a little bigger. But... Uh, what do they do? I just, I just put up with them. I don't know what they're here for. They're vestigial, you know? We drag them around, etc. Richard Dawkins, who's an evolutionary biologist, said it's impossible for any cellular structure, any, any organ, to be vestigial and part of the evolutionary process. It has to be useful at every step of the way. Do you see why? Because if it isn't useful, then it doesn't fit into natural selection. It's going to disappear. It doesn't help. Well, how then do you evolve wings? Oh, that's a big problem, isn't it? All right, we'll talk about that. Well, that's a couple weeks, okay? Not tonight. These are three problems. Do you see it, okay? By the way, the illustration that he uses, that B he uses, is of the mousetrap. We'll talk about that. I haven't drawn it out. But the, the, the mousetrap, you know that piece of, piece of wood with the spring and the thing and the little place where you put the bait and all that? Huh? And the cheese. Well, the cheese is the bait. That's right. You have all these things. If you take this mousetrap and you remove one piece, what good is it? Let's say you take the spring out, that heavy-duty spring, but you have all the other pieces there. What, what good is it? Will it help you? No, it's not even good paperweight, really. I mean, it doesn't do anything. You take away the wood base. You've got the spring. You've got everything else. Can you have a mousetrap? Absolutely not. How about the staple that holds the thing? That, no, got to have that. Everything on there is needed. Everything. And you take one, even just one thing away, and it's useless. That's a problem, isn't it? How do you evolve up into the mousetrap? So that's what we're getting at. And they are working on this. Trust me. These are clever, intelligent people, uh, the evolutionists. And they're working on Behe's argument. They're trying to think of how you can get up into eyesight, how you can get up into wings. This book has 20 pages on how flight may have evolved. And it's amazing the number of subjunctive voices. Possibly it could have been this. Maybe what we saw is that the wings were useful for such and such. Frankly, we really don't know, but we don't need to know because it happened. Very interesting argument, okay? Okay. One, one thing we know for sure is evolution occurred. We don't need to figure it out because it did happen. All right? So you've got to watch these kind of things. All right, now, let's zero in on what I think of all of them, the most devastating problem of all. Where did life come from? How do you go from non-life to life? This is a huge problem. And it's so huge that they acknowledge that uh, some people say, some evolutionists say, we will never solve this problem. They say, we just absolutely do not know but we know that evolution is true. And they will not give up on it. Okay? All right. Look at, on page one, what I call the inverted pyramid of cards. Now, the reason I call this is that, you know, I, I use this as an illustration with my son, Nathaniel, building a house of cards. Okay? A house of cards is intrinsically what? When you think of something, oh, that's just a house of cards. What are you thinking of when you say that? Fragile. It's fragile or unstable. Okay? Life is that way. It's unstable. It really is. Um, and if I say inverted pyramid, what I mean is that if you could imagine a period, pyramid of cards that's only ever getting more complicated, see what I'm saying? Like this. And it just keeps going up and getting more and more complex and more and more, one could say, unstable. Meanwhile, imagine a fan blowing on the, on the cards the whole time. So I had my son, as I was building it, I had him blowing on my cards the whole time. So I'd put a, a set of a two cards leaning as a teepee together. That's how you start. Also helps if you bend them a little bit. You can use glue, but that's a little unfair, okay? <laughs> so it's not a house of cards anymore. It's a structure that you're building. So you lean them together, and then I let go, and he was blowing the whole time. Blew it right off the table. Gone. So I got two more and put them together. And he blew, after he blew off four or five in a row, he said, why am I doing this? <laughs> Waste of time. Okay? What you don't realize is how profound that is because it has to do with, with life. You realize that the amino acids are getting destroyed faster than they're getting made almost. You know, as soon as they're made, they're, and we've got to have a huge pool of these things for life to come up. 
okay? So there's a constant fighting against nature. We're fighting against the laws of nature in order to go from the simple to the ever more complex. How do they answer it? I don't know. But I want to read this quote. This is uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a very intelligent uh, British uh, microbiologist, uh, el evolutionist, writing, um, uh, defending evolution. He wrote The Blind Watchmaker, for example, and just uh, one guy I read on the Internet said, when I read it, it made me want to go out and debate a creationist. So he ran out so excited he wanted to go debate a creationist. Well, I understand that feeling just the other way. Um, but uh, this, is, this is what the, it's called Climbing Mount Improbable. I, I think it should be uh, entitled Climbing Mount Impossible. But um, he would say it can't be Mount Impossible because it happened. All right, but we'll get to that by and by. Uh, but Climbing Mount Improbable. And this is what the leaf says. Uh, the towering cliffs of Mount Improbable can never, it seems, be climbed. In Richard Dawkins' remarkable new book, The Heights of Mount Improbable, represent the combination of perfection and improbability that is epitomized in the seemingly, seemingly designed perfection of living things. Seemingly designed. Okay. From the combination of strength and sensitivity of an elephant's trunk, to the life-saving camouflage of an ant-mimicking beetle, the living world is populated by creatures that seem miraculously designed, seem miraculously designed for the lives they lead. But these complex and brilliantly effective features cannot have come about by undirected chance. That would be equivalent to scaling the sheer face of the mountain in a single leap. The only way to explain seemingly designed objects is by slow, gradual evolution, inching cumulatively, almost infinitely slowly by the standards of human history, up the gentle paths on the far side of Mount Improbable. Oh, really? Well, let's talk about that journey. Let's find out how far we've come along Mount Improbable, okay? You have the inverted pyramid of cards. What you have to do, if you're an evolutionist, is explain how you got from in the universe, not just on Earth, but I mean in the universe, Nothing to something. You, I mean, you have to start there. You're starting with nothing, and you end up with something. How do you get that? That's a problem. That's an even bigger problem than where life came from. But uh, what's his name? Stephen Hawking, that British, brilliant British guy who's got that disease. Is it Lou Gehrig's disease? Anyway, he's in a wheelchair all the time. Very sharp guy. He said, what happened before the Big Bang? He said, that's like asking what's north of the North Pole. Nothing happened before the Big Bang. Well, still, it's worth asking because I say in the beginning, God, so there was something at the beginning, God. He's the uncreated creator. What does he have? Nothing. And suddenly there's something. Anyway, big bang. Then the stars are formed. Then solar systems are formed and our solar system was formed. And then the earth was formed just right for life, let me tell you. Other people have done incredible studies on how the earth is just perfect for life. 1% or a tenth of a percent closer or further away from the sun, you get no life. And on and on. We could talk about sunlight. We could talk about, I mean, it's just set up for life. It really is. It's ideal. All right, we go from that to non-living chemicals. All right, so we've got non-living living chemicals. What do I mean by that? Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, all these things and chemicals that form compounds, etc. But they're not alive. You know, ammonia, methane, these kind of things, just floating around. Okay, well, you go from that to amino acids. What are amino acids? Well, amino acids, the basic building blocks of life, so they call it. Amino acids, all left-handed, what does that mean? We'll get to that. All left-handed being built uh, into proteins, from proteins to RNA, from RNA to DNA, from DNA to single-celled organisms. At last, we have life, according to the definition. What definition? We'll get to that. Single-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms. Multi-celled organisms to invertebrate marine life. What is that? Like jellyfish, sea worms, anemones, those kinds of things, many of which are still with us today, but invertebrates, all right? They don't have skeletons. We go from that to vertebrate marine life. What are the fishes with skeletons, with spines, spinal columns, things like that? Okay, now I want you to know that in between uh, 10 and 11 should be a bunch of transitional forms fossils, right? And in between 11 and 12, or 11 and 12, there should be more fossils, lots of them, millions and millions of years worth, as we see the journey from invertebrate marine life to, to vertebrate marine life. 
Well, where do we go next? Amphibians. We've got to get out of the ocean, right? So we get up onto the land. And again, no fossils, no transitional figures, just amphibians. What next? Mammals. All right. What next? Primates. All right. Or reptiles. Amphibians, reptiles, mammals, primates. That's monkeys, apes, and then man. That's quite a journey, isn't it? From nothing to man. And they're going to explain all this through naturalistic means. Well, they can't. It's Mount Improbable. No, it's Mount Impossible, frankly. Turn the page. Now, much of what I'm giving you I got from a lecture by Dwayne Gish. does a great job at Institute Creation Research zeroing in on the origins of life, ever-increasingly difficult obstacles on Mount Improbable. What's our first challenge? The first challenge is the primitive Earth atmosphere. Okay, let's start there. All right? Primitive Earth model. Evolution's uniform, uniformitarian creed is the present is the key to the past. What do we mean by that? Present is the key to the past. How do we use that with like uh, radiocarbon dating and all that kind of thing? It's an assumption. They're making an assumption that what you see around you today is the way it's always been. Why do you have to make that assumption with radioisotope dating? Well, we, nobody lived millions or billions of years ago, so you have to make assumptions. And the only way you can ever make the assumption that clicks in the radio uh, isotope dating is assume that the readings you get out of rocks today is what you would have gotten 10 billion or, or 3 billion years ago, 4.5 billion years ago when, when the Earth was formed, so they say. Okay, so that's a uniformitarian assumption. The present is the key to the past. The problem is it doesn't work with the primitive Earth atmosphere. Why is that? Because of oxygen. All right? You cannot have oxygen in the atmosphere when life is struggling to form. Why is that? What does oxygen do to things? What does it do to the car out back that you're meaning to fix, but you haven't gotten to it? It just destroys stuff. That's what burning is. Burning is oxidation. That's what a flame is. Everything will burn at the right temperature. It's a combination with oxygen. Oxygen just destroys stuff. And every one of these evolutionary... Uh, primitive evolutionary schemes posits an atmosphere in which there is no oxygen. Okay? Well, that's a problem. Where, where did it come from, the oxygen that we breathe? Well, they've got answers for that. But I'm asking a different question. On what basis can you dare to posit an atmosphere for which there is no scientific evidence whatsoever? How is that science? That has got to be religion. There is no evidence whatsoever that the atmosphere they posit ever existed. Only ammonia and free hydrogen, some carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, etc. But no oxygen, no oxygen, no oxygen. There's no evidence for it. As a matter of fact, they're finding chunks of ice up in the North Pole and they're finding little air bubbles in it. And they're carefully kind of bringing the air out of those old bubbles. And you know what they find? Same mix that we have. Is it 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen? some argon and trace elements. That's what It's the same thing. So there's only evidence that we've had the same atmosphere that we've always had in terms of oxygen. And yet they have to maintain that there's no oxygen in the primitive Earth atmosphere. Why? Because it would destroy life right from the start. And if you can say there was definitely oxygen in the atmosphere of the primitive Earth, life, the evolution of life, is impossible from the start. Dwayne Gish, in the, in the lecture he's giving, he said, class dismissed, you can go home, evolution's impossible, we're finished. We don't have to go any further at all if there was oxygen in the early atmosphere. So they all admit it and they all know it and so they say there was no oxygen in the early atmosphere. But I'm saying there's no scientific evidence for it. That's a problem right from the start, isn't it? What are we going to do with that? Another problem is you need energy and you're going to see why, but basically if you want to get a car from the bottom of a, of a hill to the top, you need energy. It's not naturally going to go uphill. And all of these processes, from less complex to more complex, take energy. They require en energy. Well, the primitive energy sources are all destructive, primarily. Ultraviolet light is destructive. Uh, lightning, the heat from volcanoes, all of these things is more energy than you would want. More energy than you could ever use. And so that's a problem. Uh, one scientist calculated that if the entire atmosphere of the Earth were made up of nothing but ammonia, which is a very stable molecule, so we had nothing but uh, ammonia, ultraviolet light would break it all down into nitrogen and hydrogen within 30,000 years. Well, if it's going to break, ultraviolet light's going to break all that ammonia down, what's it going to do to proteins and amino acids and all that? It's going to destroy them. 
So the energy sources are all much more than you could ever want. What energy sources are there in the laboratory? Well, they're carefully designed energy sources just tailored to the needs to make amino acids and proteins. They know that too much, you're going to destroy it. But you wouldn't have had that in the primitive atmosphere. You ever see drawings of like volcanic stuff? and just It's horrendous, all right? Way too much energy than they could have used. All right, so first challenge, primitive Earth atmosphere. Now, you know what we're doing here, guys. We're climbing up Mount Improbable, okay? So here we are, and it's a long journey, but that's, that's all right. You know why it's okay? Because we have millions and millions of years to make that journey, don't we? Okay? So we're going to keep going up Mount Improbable. And what's next? The next challenge is amino acids. What are amino acids? Well, amino acids are complex uh, molecules that are the basic building block of life, or the basic building block of proteins, which themselves basic building block of life. This is what you could call simple chemical evolution, although it really isn't all that simple. All right, primitive chemicals to amino acids. The big, big problem here is, as we said a moment ago, the energy to form the amino acids would soon destroy what was formed. It would soon destroy what was formed. Thus, if somewhere on Earth you had some little, in some little pool some amino acids being formed, the natural energy forming them, and you do need energy to form them, would destroy them at a far greater rate than they are being formed. As a matter of fact, for something simple like glycine, a million to one ratio. If you had a million molecules of glycine for every one form, one, another one's being added, a million more were just destroyed. And now you're back. To, I mean, unless you have tons and tons of this, these amino acids, you're starting from scratch every instant, just about. Why? Because of, just because of the, the energy destroying and breaking these things down. These things are unstable. unstable. When you add energy to them, they break apart. Okay, bigger problem. Bigger than the energy problem? Yes. You need lots and lots of the amino acids. You don't just need a handful or a little spoonful of it. You need tons and tons and tons of them. Why? Because you have to get up to a certain concentration level for stuff to start to happen. And so whatever's pumping out amino acids, you know, combining them, has got to do it at a huge grand scale and it's got to survive. You need a, a huge concentration. Why? Well, because the ocean's a big place, for example. Take a, a teaspoon of sugar and put it in your coffee, then your coffee gets sweet. Put it in the ocean, you don't see an appreciable difference. Okay? You've got to have a huge concentration of the amino acids to get anywhere. All right, even bigger problem. What's the next big problem? This is a surprise. Amino acids exist in two different kinds, left-handed and right-handed. What do we mean by that? Well, there's a picture on the back of your handout, page 9. See there at the bottom of page nine, you got the left-handed and the right-handed. These are generalized amino acids, okay? So if you hold up your hand, they're mirror image of each other, okay? That's why they're called left-handed and right-handed. You can't superimpose them one on the other because your thumb would be where your pinky is and your pinky where your thumb is. They're mirror image, so they're non-superimposable. Why is that significant? Well, go back to the outline. Basically, it's significant because only left-handed amino acids are active biologically. In other words, you have got to have nothing but left-handed amino acids forming together in the chain that makes, makes the, the polypeptide, makes the proteins. You've got to have nothing but left-handed amino acids. That was a neat trick by God, wasn't it? Okay, complexity. Wh why is that tricky? Well, because in nature, these things are formed 50-50. 50-50. You know, if, you, if, if somewhere on Earth something's cranking out amino acids, it's doing 50% right-handed, 50% left-handed. If you have, for example, um, a, uh, they're about two-thirds of the way down on page three, an enzyme with 650 amino acids, if you change even one amino acid from left-handed to right-handed, it becomes biologically inert. It doesn't do a thing. 649 left-handed, one right-handed. There's been a lot of papers written on why this is. It has something to do with eventually you get into the, uh, if you, you know, the DNA is the, uh, uh, the double helix. Have you ever seen it? It always curves the same direction. Always curves the same direction. And they think there's thermodynamics involved. It has to do with bonds or some of the st strong or weak nuclear forces. They don't really know why it is for sure. But it always goes the same direction. And so if you stick even one right-handed in there, it stops. You can't make the chain. And you've got to have the long chains in order to store up information. So, somewhere on Earth, something is cranking out amino acids in the primitive Earth atmosphere that has no oxygen. Okay? Remember that. No oxygen. Okay. So, somewhere, amino acids are, by chance, being cranked out. 
They're being cranked out 50% left, 50% right. Somehow, they have to organize themselves, and all the left-handed ones have to get away from those right-handed ones, and they have to all kind of get over here, and they have to gather together if they're going to go to the next stage, namely a biologically active protein. Can that happen? Is that Mount Improbable to you? I don't know. Sounds like Mount Impossible to me. Every protein in a living cell has 100% left-handed amino acids. Well, they say, well, yes, but we have some scientific experiments proving that it happened. Oh, really? Let's look at one of these. Stanley Miller. Maybe you've heard of Stanley Miller. Maybe when you went through biology, you heard of Stanley Miller. Uh, again, on the back page, you can look at the picture while I describe um, what Stanley Miller did. Did you see the diagram there? This was from my wonderful biology book here by Miller and Levine. They think very highly of Stanley Miller's uh, experiments, so they put a picture in there. And all you have to do is just look in there and find out what happened. All right, well, let me, um, let me describe what Stanley Miller did. Stanley Miller was a graduate student in Dr. Harold Urey's class and began thinking as he was listening to one of his lectures, put together this experiment. He wanted to make amino acids in the in a primitive, a simulated primitive Earth environment. So he's going to have a primitive Earth atmosphere and he's going to have a an energy source, okay? Now, first of all, tell me something about his primitive Earth atmosphere. Tell me something about it, please. Good, you're listening. <laughs> no oxygen. You have some methane, ammonia, some other things in there, all kinds of swirling gases, but we gotta keep that oxygen, that nasty oxygen out of there, okay? So there was no oxygen. We all know that the primitive Earth atmosphere had no oxygen anyway, we all know that, don't we? So keep that oxygen out of there. Next thing you need, a, a power source. What did he use? He used electrical discharge, like a spark plug. So it just kind of zap in there and put some energy in there. All right, he circulated the gases for two weeks. He also created something very important. At the bottom, okay, it's kind of light there. Um, but do you see at the bottom there's a little spigot with something dripping? Okay, the condenser goes down to what we call a trap. Okay, the trap is a fascinating aspect of Stanley Miller's experiment. Okay, what happened was, let me complete what happened in the experiment, then let's talk about the trap. Okay, what happened is after two weeks, he found some kind of slimy stuff in there, he analyzed it and found a few amino acids. Uh, the headline in the newspaper the next day is, scientists very close to creating life in a test tube. Okay, so the newspapers at least skipped a lot of steps on Mount Improbable and went right up to life, okay? Uh, that's remarkable that they did that, but at any rate, that's what they said. So we can create life in a test. Actually, all he did was a tightly controlled experiment which resulted in a few amino acids, which if he, if he had left them alone would soon, have, would, would soon have been destroyed anyway. Well, let's talk about the key. The key is the trap. Look on page four, the description of the trap. The trap was absolutely essential to the experiment and absolutely fatal to its relevance for the evolution of life. It was essential to his experiment, fatal to what he was trying to prove. Why was it essential? Well, he had to get his product away from the energy source. The little amino acids that are getting formed up, he had to get them away from the sparking discharge. Why did he have to do that? It would destroy him. They're very unstable. And so he's got to get the amino acids away from the spark. So he's got to have a little place where they can kind of be safe from the storm. You know what I'm saying? And so they kind of coagulate down there. They kind of kind of condense down there, and they're, and they're there for a little while. If he leaves them too long, they'll all be gone, but some are there. Now, why is this needed? Because in the primitive Earth you know, environment, whatever energy was sufficient to form the amino acids would have gone on and destroyed them if given the chance. So you've got to have some kind of a trap. Well, what is it? Would it have happened in real life? I don't really think so. What would it be? A little hollowed out section on the side of the mountain? You know, some place where they could, they could form or gather there? Okay, well, let's say that even if there had been a trap in the primitive uh, earth uh, situation, that is the end of the line. Do you understand that? because it is now isolated from the energy source. And we're not done with our journey yet uh, up Mount Improbable. We need more energy to get higher up. If you want to go from amino acid to protein, what are you going to need? More energy than you needed to go from chemical to amino acids. But now it's isolated. It's the end of the line. Furthermore, you need to combine with lots of other amino acids. You see what I'm saying? It's the end of the line. And so the trap makes the experiment irrelevant. 
to the evolution of life because you never would have had that. If they had been allowed to continue to circulate and be uh, connected with some kind of energy source, they would have all been destroyed. As a matter of fact, if you take nothing but amino acids and put them in his experiment, starting with amino acids and put them in with the spark, after a while you go back to the primitive chemicals that he started with. You don't end up with anything. You just end up with, we're back to the basic building blocks. So it's my house of cards, and you just let go, and we're just back to flat cards laying on the table. So it doesn't go up at all. It flattens back down. You don't go up to proteins. So he needed the trap, but the trap was fatal to his whole experiment. So have they created life in a test tube? Well, Stanley Miller didn't. The best he got was a handful of amino acids. Well, let's keep going. The fact of the matter is that all of this is unstable. Amino acids are more unstable molecules than ammonia. Proteins more unstable than amino acids. DNA more than proteins. Gish said that life is the most complex, unstable arrangement in the universe. You know how unstable it is? Have you ever seen roadkill? All it takes is one, you know, <laughs> or one little spike going through the specific part of the squirrel's body and it's dead. You know, just a slight rearrangement and it's done. That's how unstable life is. Very unstable. All right. Another problem, sugars. Sugars react easily with amino acids. And when they do, it's the end of the line. You can't go up from amino acid to proteins if sugars are around. So biochemists that are doing this in the lab keep the sugars away. The problem is you need sugars for life. And they're all floating around in there along with everything else, along with the left and right-handed amino acids. It's all floating together. There's no intelligence organizing. It's just floating together. Well, that's okay. We have millions and millions of years to work with it. You see, we're going up Mount Improbable, and we have millions and millions of years. And it's okay if sugars are floating around. No, it isn't, because they will react easily, more easily with the amino acids than other amino acids, and they will end up some kind of a uh, useless compound, non-active bio biologically. The final thing that Gish said is we need a huge quantity of phosphoric acid to generate the backbone for DNA. You ever heard of ATP, GTP, TTP? The backbone, the structure of the helix. The double helix like this, it's made of, it, it's made of phosphorus. That's, that's the structural backbone of the DNA. The problem is that if you just had phosphoric acid floating around, it's going to react with, with calcium and form an insoluble salt. So all the pho phosphorus you need is at the bottom of the ocean in the form of rocks. So there it is. It's all at the bottom of the ocean. Now, we're still, guys, at the level of the amino acid. We haven't even gotten to protein yet. And it's all falling apart. It's totally falling apart, all right? Summary quote, the physical chemist guided by the proved principles of chemical thermodynamics and kinetics cannot offer any encouragement to the biochemist who needs an ocean full of organic compounds to form even lifeless compounds. Bottom line is chemistry says no to the creation of life right from the start. It just can't, it just cannot happen. But we're not done. Well, yeah, we, we suddenly have a bunch of amino acids. We've done the easy thing. Now we have to go up to proteins. And what's the problem there? Well, the next challenge of proteins, there's two problems. How are they going to combine chemically? That's the first problem. And in what sequence do they combine? That's the second problem. All right? You know enough about DNA to know that the sequence is everything. Have you learned that? It's got to do with, it's almost like an alphabet, the order. It has to do with your hair color, your height your parents, genes, all that kind of thing. It's got to do with sequencing of some basic chemicals, basic, uh, a basic ordering of the proteins. That, that's information, isn't it? So all the information for flight and eyesight and all of that has to do with sequencing. If you get the order wrong, you don't have the same function. Everything changes. So it's all about sequencing. Well, let's start first with how do they combine chemically. First of all, amino acids do not naturally combine to form proteins. You need a great deal of energy you need a lot of energy in order to do that. Where does the energy come from? And secondly, how are they arranged in intelligent sequence? They must be arranged to form a language, not gibberish. Bottom of page five. Jim, would you read that for me, please? Come on. Something. Make something out of it. There you go. Something like this. Well, there's some order in there anyway. It's got it's to come out in a reasonable order or else you just get gibberish. You don't get life, you get gibberish, you get nothing, okay? Well, now we, we, we had pseudoscience in the form of Stanley Miller. Now we need pseudoscience to get from, from amino acids up to proteins, right? Dr. Gish said, Sidney Fox's work on proteins is the worst form of pseudoscience ever published. All right? Harsh statement, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, he's seeking to answer the question, how could the amino acids have formed into proteins on the primitive earth? All right, what does he do? Well, he gets a bunch of pure, dry, pre-selected amino acids off a bottle, in, out of a bottle in his lab, and puts them in a test tube. Then he heats them to a temperature of 175 degrees centigrade. Water boils at 100 degrees C, okay? Now realize we are imitating how life evolved naturally on, in primitive earth. Where are you gonna find 175 degrees C? Remember, water boils at 100 degrees C, so we're talking about way over, almost double the boiling point of water. Well, you're only gonna find that inside an active volcano. That's the only place you're gonna find that kind of temperature. Doesn't matter, he heats it to 175 degrees C. Why is he doing that? He's trying to drive off the water that forms when two amino acids come together. H2O, the two form together and you've got water and the water works against for, uh, the forming of more bonds. So he's gotta get the water out of there. So he's heating it up 175 degrees C. Keeps it hot for six hours at 175 degrees C. Not seven hours, mind you, because then the compound starts to get broken apart and destroyed by the high temperature. Okay? So imagine the primitive Earth. We're in the center of an active volcano. Okay? We've got a bunch of left-handed amino acids all there in the center of an active volcano. Uh, no, it's all right. We're, we're working our way up Mount Improbable here. Okay? We're, we're in the center of an active volcano with a bunch of left-handed amino acids, and we've got... It, we've got to stay there just six hours, and then somehow it has to bubble over and flow down, and, and rainwater, he thought, would wash it to a uh, cooling place where the proteins could form. That's how the bonds would get formed naturally, because it takes even more energy to go from amino acid to protein that went from chemicals to amino acids. So we need more energy. So now we've got uh, life in a test tube. That's what they said after his experiment. We're even closer to forming life in a test tube. That's a big problem. Why is it called pseudoscience? First of all, where are you gonna find in all the world pure amino acids? Why pure? Because lots of other chemicals will come in and it would have ruined this chemical process. It's gotta be pure, he knew that. Secondly, 50% right-handed and 50% left-handed. Okay, he didn't d differentiate so he didn't make life. He just put them all together, they were 50% left and right. All right, but we know they've all got to be left, 100% left-handed if you're going to have biologically active proteins. All right, thirdly, unbelievably high temperature, 175 degrees C. Fourthly, it can only be there six hours. Fifthly, small quantities when you actually need tons and tons of this stuff. And then we haven't solved the sequencing problem. Well, what do we mean by the sequencing problem? Next challenge, protein sequencing. The sequencing of proteins forms complex molecules like enzymes, RNA, and DNA. If we had 17 of you standing up and, and, and we put you in a line, how many different ways, don't look at the sheet, come on, come on, come on. How many different ways could we order 17 people? Do, do you know how to figure it out? Well, we got millions of years to figure it out. I don't, I'm gonna die 70, 80 years old, whatever. But uh, it's 17 factorial is what it is. So it's 17 times 16 times 15 times 14 times 13 times 13. That's how many different ways you can arrange 17 people. The answer is 355 trillion different ways. 300, 355 trillion ways that 17, you and 16 of your closest friends can arrange in different order. And if you don't believe me, go home tonight and try it, okay? And just start counting. Just have somebody keep record. Okay, were you already here? I don't know. We've been at this a long time. What are we up to? 150,000? Keep going. Got a long way to go. 355 trillion different ways. Suppose you add one person. Now there's 18 of you. Do you know how many different ways you can arrange? Next page. Six quadrillion, 392 trillion approximately. That's 18 factorial. All right? Now, human growth hormone, for example, has 188 amino acids in precise sequence. 188 factorial. What do you think that is? I don't know the answer. I went to Excel. Excel has a factorial function, and you can put in the number, and it'll figure out whatever factorial. It didn't go that high. It couldn't go that high. It gave me an error. All right, it went up to 170 factorial, and 170 factorial is 7.25 times 10 to the 306. And Excel said, you don't need a number that big and any, anything higher. I mean, <laughs> nothing is that big. 
You know, there's not that many atoms in the universe. You don't need a number that big. Why they even gave us up that high? But you try it. Go home to Excel and put in 171 factorial and it'll give you an error message. But 170, it'll figure it out for you. At some point, a programmer at Microsoft said, what am I doing? We don't need to go this high. You know, and he said, enough is enough. You know, nobody's ever going to need to go 171 factorial, ever. Well, yeah, we do. We're not even up to 188. And that's for a simple, the simple human growth hormone, just an enzyme. That's all it is. We're not up to DNA yet. Mount Improbable, folks. Mount Improbable. One of those sequence out of order. You don't have human growth uh, hormone anymore. You got something else. All right? You get gibberish. You know, I don't understand this. I, do, you, do you begin after a while to start to say, why would you cling to something this weak and flimsy? Stubbornly resisting. Do you, did you, rea do you realize how many times it says seems to be designed, seemingly well designed? They're forcing themselves against the obvious that God has created this every step of the way with unbelievable intelligence and that there's no way it could have just happened. Now, I looked up on the Internet and I said, what answer are they going to give to this? What answer? If you look, um, well, don't do it, at the back of the page, um, a mathematician, Sir Fred Hoyle, who is a uh, cosmologist, studies the cosmos, uh, astronomer, brilliant man. He said, if you put, you know, 200 proteins, we'll go ahead and look. Um, Page 9. The probability of the spontaneous origin of 2,000 proteins of 200 amino acids each is 10 to the minus 40,000. 1 in 10 to the 40,000s. Um, that's zero, folks. I, I, don't, I don't know how closer you need to get to zero. If, if XL kicked us out after 10 to the 306, we're at 10 to the minus 40,000. Fred Hoyle said it is zero probability that this could have happened. It, it literally breaks the science of probability. Well, what is the answer to that? Stephen Jay Gould said, if we could go back in time to, that, to the beginning, the primordial everything, we would not have evolved this way. It is impossible, but somehow it happened. And we don't need to figure it out. All we know is it happened. And we know that evolution's true. That's what he said. We don't need to figure this out. Somebody else said, okay, I'll prove to you how irrelevant your probability arguments are. You take a card, you take 10 cards, or 10 decks of cards. That's 520 cards. You know how many different ways 520 cards can be arranged? Well, far more. We've already shown that 170 goes to 10 to the 306. He says, spread them out on a table. There, you've got an arrangement. The odds against that arrangement occurring are so high you could never calculate them, and yet there it is, it happened. I think it's a foolish argument because there's no significance to that arrangement. There's no significance to the ordering of cards that he just given there. But suppose he was playing cards later that evening with a friend and seven straight times that friend drew a royal flush while, while dealing the deck. What do you think he's going to say to his friend? You're cheating. <laughs> How about just two times in a row? How do you keep getting the ace, jack, king, queen, ten or whatever of spades and keep cleaning out the, the kitty? You must be cheating. He can't live with that kind of probability, and that's far less than the kind of probability we're talking here. It's a foolish argument. He's saying it happened. We don't know how it happened. We never need to figure it out. All we know is it happened, even though the probability is just about zero that it occurred. All right, so we've gone from amino acids up to proteins. Let's say we even can get the protein sequencing right. What do we have? One properly sequenced protein molecule. That's all. Just one of perhaps human growth hormone. One. How long is it going to last in the primordial soup? Not long. It's going to be destroyed. And then you're back to zero again. But that's okay because, you know, we have millions and millions of years to get up the slopes of Mount Improbable. It doesn't matter how long it takes. We'll get there eventually. We know we get there because we got there, didn't we? We evolved. All right, we haven't gotten to life yet, though. What do we have to do? We have to go to the next challenge, which is the first living cell. By the way, DNA, how complex is that? We were talking about human growth hormone. Do you know that DNA, the, the double helical structure of DNA, was discovered exactly 50 years ago, February 28th, so it's in two days, so 
campus today. So on Friday, 50, 50 years ago, Friday, Watson and Crick. Francis Watson and James Crick, or James Watson, Francis Crick, I don't know, whatever. Watson and Crick, two evolutionists, okay? The ones who said, what you have to keep in mind all the time is that you're dealing with things that seem to have been designed for a purpose, okay? My goodness. Do you know what, uh, what his theory is? Look at this, on page uh, seven, Francis Watson's theory of how life came on Earth, the panspermia theory. He thinks that it's impossible for life to have evolved on Earth because of the oxygen problem in the atmosphere and all that. So he thinks it came from a meteor full of kind of uh, uh, you know, protein-rich soup that hit the Earth at a certain propitious moment in a certain propitious place, and then it took over from there. That's what he's resorted to. Meanwhile, I found on the Internet a $1.35 million prize to anyone who can explain the origin of life. Somebody's putting their money where their mouth is, and this greatly encouraged me. You know what it tells me? Nobody has an answer to this. I don't need to do any more research. not like some, some guy out there saying, don't you know about my Nobel Prize winning work? All right, I've already answered this problem. You're just not reading the right books. Oh, no. If somebody's going to put a $1.35 million prize out there for anybody who will meet the following criteria, it can't be done, or it hasn't been done up to now. I think the person putting the money out wants it to be done, but it will not be done. What is the prize for? Well, it's called the Origin of Life Prize. And you have to answer, look at the bottom of page 7. You have to answer the anticipation of biological ends, metabolic construction. Forget all that. Listen, page 8. To be counted alive, you have to come up with a structure that can do the following things. Your first, this is your first cell, the first living cell. Isn't it exciting? There he is, the little guy. Been waiting for years, millions and millions of years. We've made a long way up Mount Improbable. Here he is, Mr. First Cell. All right? Of course, there's only one. He's going to die quickly. So I hope that he can reproduce. Well, that's all right. That's part of the requirement to be alive. It has to be able to reproduce. Look at the nine things that it needs to have. To be counted as alive, the substance must deal with the following. Substance. Why is it substance? Because before it was this, it wasn't alive. So we can't call it life. It's substance. Something. All right? It has to have a cell wall to delineate itself from its environment through the production and maintenance of a membrane equivalent, most probably a rudimentary or quasi-active transport membrane necessary for selective absorption of nutrients, excretion of wastes, and overcoming osmotic and toxic gradients. What does this mean? It means a cell wall that won't blow up or get crushed. It's got to have just the right strength. All right? So it's got to have a membrane. It's got to be able to take in nutrients and pass them back out. Do you know how complicated the cell wall is? Unbelievably complex. Secondly, you must have information for reproduction. It must, must be able to write, store, and pass along to progeny, that's children, prescriptive information or instruction needed for organization to provide instructions for ener energy derivation and for needed metabolite production and function symbolically encode and communicate functional message through a transmission channel to receiver, decoder, blah, blah, blah. What is it? It needs a recipe. Any of you made cookies or cake or something like that? You eat it, it's delicious. You say, well, what was it? I don't know. I just threw a bunch of things in and it came out. Well, how are you going to do it again? I, I can't. I'm an engineer. I know this. What engineers all the time are doing, and scientists do, but engineers are working on recipes. I put my recipes in things called drawings. All right? It's a recipe for the left, uh, the left wall and the right wall, the back wall, where the fan goes, where the... Uh, it's a recipe. And if uh, that's what you're making. And then you, t you make a prototype, you test the recipe. You're making how to make a million of them. And so the cell has to do that too. It's got to have figured out how to do everything it does and encode it in, in DNA. It's got to figure that out and encode it. Third, You've got to be able to go actively from information to chemicals. It can't just be theoretical information. It's got to live. It's got to be able to eat. It's got to be able to excrete. It's got to be able to, to survive. So it's got to be working information that transforms from information to actual chemicals. Bring to pass the above recipe instructions into the actual production or acquisition of catalysts, coenzymes, cofactors, etc. Physically orchestrate the biochemical processes and pathways of metabolic reality. I love that. What does that mean? It's got to be able to actually do it. Right? 
Those who can't do, teach. Ever heard that before? Well, the cell's got to be able to both teach and do. Okay? It's got to be able to do both. Fourth, it's got to be able to eat. It's got to eat, the little guy. If it doesn't eat, it's not alive. What is eating? Taking in nourishment, energy. Why? Because I told you, everything takes energy. But we're not going to work with Stanley Miller's spark anymore or uh, the other guy, what's his name? 175 degrees C guy. No, that's not good anymore. We need chemical energy. And so we need intelligent chemical energy. You get that from eating. What did you have for lunch today? Sandwich, whatever. You put it in your, in your mouth. You chewed it up and sent it to your stomach. And what it does, you'll never know. But it knows what to do. All right, it's been doing it since you were a little baby. Taking in nourishment and sending it to the body so that your body can live. It must be able to eat. It must be able to reproduce, actively self-replicate and eventually reproduce. Not just passively, polymerize or crystallize, but pass along the apparatus and know-how for homeostatic metabolism and reproduction and progeny. It needs to be able to split and reproduce. And not only that, but it must reproduce genetically. And it must not reproduce genetically perfectly. Why? Because you can't have natural selection with that, right? There's got to be slight changes so that we can develop, we can unfold. You can't just have, let's say the first cell was a liver cell. What good would that be? All right? I mean, what good is that? Here he is, our first little guy, and he's a liver cell, but he's got no friends, and he's not in the middle of a human body, and he died soon thereafter. What a shame. But that's okay, because we still have millions of years, and maybe the next cell will be a nerve cell. No, it's got to be a cell that can live on its own and then eventually develop through ever-added information to you and me. Mount Improbable. That's right. It's got to reproduce. It's got to be able to heal, to self-monitor and repair itself. It must be able to grow, to develop from immaturity to reproduce, uh, reproductive maturity. It's got to deal with its environment. It has to productively react to environmental stimuli. Don't you love that? What does that mean? It's got to be able to handle what's going on around it or else it'll die. And it has to be stable yet adaptable. Possess relative genetic stability yet sufficient diversity to allow for adaptation and potential. What's the final word? Evolution. That's our first little cell. Beginning of it all, right there. And so we have gone this evening on a, quite a journey, haven't we? We started with the primitive Earth atmosphere with no oxygen, okay? And we've gone from that to all those inert chemicals kind of moving around to an amino acid. And we've gone from not just an amino acid, but lots and lots of amino acids and all of them left-handed, combining in long chains that became polypeptides, proteins. And the sequencing of that meant it was either human growth uh, hormone or DNA, RNA, all of these sequencing, that's what it was, information. We went from that eventually to these nine criteria for life. Cell wall, reproduction, eating, excreting and respiring, all of these things that it must be able to do. That's your first cell. Are you done with the evolutionary journey yet? Oh no, we've got a long way to go. Because that guy didn't let live long, we need a lot more cells and they need to start to specialize and start to get themselves together so that they can in a hundred million years be a trilobite or some little lizard or some jellyfish. And we're going up and up and up the slopes of Mount Improbable. How improbable is it? Well, this is what Hoyle said, page 9. A junkyard contains all the bits and pieces of a Boeing 747, dismembered and in disarray. A whirlwind happens to blow through the yard. What is the chance that after its passage, a fully assembled 747 ready to fly will be found standing there? What do you think? What are the odds? The answer is zero. It would never happen. And I'm saying it's unfair because the fact of the matter is all the basic ingredients weren't just laying around like in a junkyard, okay? They had to evolve. Everything had to go up to its more and more complex structure, everything. I'm telling you it didn't happen. I'm standing before you to say that the best scientific explanation for the origin, the origin of life is in the beginning, God created. There is no better scientific explanation. Stephen Jay Gould says, I don't know and I don't need to figure it out because we know it happened. The other guy that I read about the 10 decks of cards says, hey, weird, bizarre things happen all the time. Mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins says we're climbing Mount Improbable. I say that God created it. 
and I say that the scripture is authoritative. And all the other stuff, Darwin and all the other things and the Scopes Monkey Trial, that is actually a lot easier to explain because you're up here and we took the final step to man. I'm asking, oh, no, no, let's go back here and tell me what happened down there. And they can't do it. Can't do it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to look tonight. And uh, I know that in some cases the things that we've discussed are really quite technical and complex. And I don't understand them all, Lord, because your universe is complex. But I know this, that uh, the evolutionary explanation of the origin of life is uh, incredible. I cannot believe it. And Father, I pray that you would please use us to preach the gospel, the gospel of a creator and sustainer of life. We can say in John chapter 1, verse 4, in him, in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of men. And we thank you so much that life is your gift and that you create it and sustain it. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us as we go on from here to have a greater and greater confidence in the Scripture, the Word of God. Thank you for the study we've had tonight and for each person that came out in the elements tonight to study. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.